You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. In the name of Allah, the gracious and merciful. A very warm welcome to our listeners to the breakfast show uh, here at The Voice of Islam. And today's program, just like our other programs, will be an interesting one. A program regarding various topics. Um, and naturally, we'll be covering the, the World Cup final, which uh, goes without saying. But before we do so, um, a quick mention of our segments, the first being about the Christmas dinner and what it consists of. And as usual, we'll have various guest callers helping us navigate through these segments um, and indeed discussing um, the various uh, segments. And indeed, in our second uh, topic will be about the prestigious award for work into causes of long COVID, uh, which has been um, very heavily covered in the news. But before we do jump into those segments, and also a very warm welcome to my co-presenter, Brother Osman, how are you this morning? Yeah, good morning. I'm good, Alhamdulillah. How are you? Very good, Alhamdulillah. Yes, yes. Well, thankfully, it's not that cold. Um, the snow is all melted, and uh, it seems like, um, superficially at least, that the weather is getting slightly warmer. But in the news, let's see what's been happening. So we have to cover the World Cup final, and what a World Cup final it was. It lived up to the drama. Um, Lionel Messi finally achieved his... World Cup dream, we can see, as Argentina won their third crown on penalties in one of the greatest finals in tournament's history. Argentina, if you weren't aware yesterday, won the shootout 4-2 after a spectacular game, which developed into the much-anticipated confrontation between the 35-year-old Marshal Messi and his France opposite uh, Kylian Mbappe. France's own superstar scored a hat-trick, the first in a FIFA World Cup final since 1966, but still ended up on the losing side in the Lucille Stadium. Messi looked to be securing one major honour missing from his glittering collection in comfort as Argentina cruised into a two-goal lead. And what a final it was. Um, you know, th- something perhaps which... Uh, some of us may have not been expecting and uh, some of us may have but um, it was absolutely spectacular for them to be leading 2-0 for 70 odd minutes and then right at the end um, you know France coming back drawing which nobody expected um, it certainly lived up to the expectation and I think it just ticks off now the conversation is cemented Messi is in fact um, right up there with the best, if not the best, with this being the only trophy which was left from his cabinet. Um, and, you know, as the reports will tell you, they're all in front of me now, you know, being heavily covered. Um, the the astonishment, you know, Mbappe cemented his status, actually, as one of the game's modern greats with only the second hat-trick in the World Cup final, following Sir Jeff Hurst's uh, when England beat West Germany in, in 1966, but the 23-year-old still suffered the pain of defeat. Mbappe was an anonymous, as most of his team, for the first 80 minutes, ill-served amid an unfathomable poor France display, which they put in despite seeking to become the first side to retain the trophy since Brazil did so 60 years ago, and only the third ever after Italy won in 1934 and 1938. Manager... Didier Deschamps even made two substitutions before half-time, replacing 
Olivier Giroud and Dembele with Marcus Theron and Carlo Moini. So they tried their best, but unfortunately um, it wasn't meant to be. And if I'm brutally honest, I was also sporting Argentina. Um, <laughs> but there you are. Brother Osman, anything which caught your eye this morning in the papers? Um, yeah, so uh, firstly, obviously this World Cup, um, an amazing final. You don't see many um, matches itself, you know, with the, with the, with the, with six goals, but uh, scoring six goals, you know, on both sides in a final, that was, that was quite astonishing. Mm. Yeah, other than that, there is some uh, news of um, regarding the buses. So what's happening is that more than 130 bus operators outside London will be will begin capping single adult fares at £2 next month as part of a government-funded scheme to help people save money. Um, looks like the strikes, the bus strikes are doing something. The National Express and Stagecoach will be among those to introduce the cap in England from 1st January to 31st March. The single local bus fares in England cost about £2.80 on average, but can exceed £5 uh, in rural areas. Um, Labour has said it was a half measure after years of soaring fares. The cities of Manchester, Liverpool and West Yorkshire, are all of, it, all of which have Labour mayors, have already introduced £2 caps as part of long-term schemes. Uh, the Department of Transport, which originally announced the scheme in September, said uh, buses were the most popular form of public transport in England, making up half of all journeys across the country. It also said that the government was spending about £60 million on the cap to help families, students and commuters while taking 2 million car journeys off the road. According to the latest official figures, the number of people travelling by bus have been rising but remains well below pre-COVID levels. So um, at the same time, local bus fares in England were up 4% in three months. Um, the government says that the scheme will help the bus industry's recovery while uh, also enabling passengers to save. It also said that the cap was an important step in ensuring passengers got a fair deal um, since uh, all of you know that if you have to take multiple buses uh, especially outside the one hour span can get a bit pricey for uh, a small journey even um, the campaign for better transport a charity welcomed the cap but said it should be extended uh, spokesman Norman Baker said capping bus fares will help struggling households cut traffic congestion and carbon emission and inject new life into dwindling bus services. Uh, no doubt about this uh, cutting traffic congestion point he has made that uh, uh, I, th I think many people, including myself, uh, use the car for even little journey journeys because um, sometimes it's just, just not worth it, you know, to take the bus. Uh, whereas before, um, I mean, all the students know that you you use a, you have a you have an Oyster card, mm. and you use a uh, so you sign up as a student, and you have basically free transport. So uh, most people prefer the bus because it does save you some time. Um, and if it doesn't save you time, it uh, during during uh, your 
bus commute you can save some time on doing other things but uh, rather than driving where you have to focus on driving mm. alone and then parking yeah parking yeah. especially especially if you're going towards like central mm. area um yeah so this this cutting down these fares i think will help um many people and and the traffic which is uh, you know a big big problem in in london mm. that's why um uh so the kind the mayor has also introduced the expansion of the ulets um mm. perhaps to to deter uh, many you know older cars to be used um, and then so eventually people you know start using public transport a bit more because of the way that the congestion is and naturally because of the pollution that is emitted from the older diesel cars mm. so it's, it's naturally a win-win situation mm. that it shouldn't be restricted to three months um spokesman norman baker is saying it shouldn't be restricted to three months but should be extended indefinitely for the sake of our pockets our economy and our environment yep so well, that's brilliant yeah that. um in other news Elon Musk uh, asks Twitter poll if he should stay as the boss. Twitter's owner, Elon Musk, is asking users of the social media platform to vote on his future as its chief executive. In a poll to his 122 million followers, he tweeted, Should I step down as head? I will abide by the results. The technology tycoon also um, runs Tesla and SpaceX has faced criticism since taking over Twitter. After a legal battle, Mr. Musk took control of the company in October uh, in a $44 billion deal. Mr. Musk also announced on Twitter that major policy changes would be voted on moving forward. The poll comes at, as Twitter says, it will shut down accounts solely designed to promote other social media platforms. The measure would also affect accounts that link off to or contain usernames from platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, Macedon, Truth Social, and various others. But cross-content posting from other sites will still be allowed. Former Twitter boss Jack Dorsey, who recently invested in Notzer, replied to the Twitter posts with one word, why? In a reply to another user posting about the Notzer promotion ban, Dorsey said, doesn't make sense. On Saturday, Washington Post reporter Taylor Lorenz was suspended for breaking the new rule before it had been formally announced, and after being reinstated on Sunday, she posted a link to the tweet she claimed got her barred. Twitter had already blocked users from sharing some links to Mastodon, the platform many Twitter users moved to after Mr. Musk's takeover. But in a series of tweets on Sunday, Twitter said, We recognize that many of our users are active on social media platforms. However, we will no longer allow free promotion of certain social media platforms on Twitter. Specifically, we will remove accounts created solely for the purpose of promoting other social platforms and content that contains links or usernames for the following platforms. Notably, Facebook, Instagram, Truth Social, Tribal, Noster, Post, and Mastodon. So, there has been um, an uproar in the changes that Mr. Musk has brought um, as he has become the CEO of Twitter. Many employees have been given the sack. Um, now we're finding various uh, changes within the policy. And indeed, I think um, even the, the blue tick is being monetized. Now you have to 
pay or at least will some of the, those people will pay a monthly fee um because uh, i presume mr musk um is changing the way that it, the whole company has run and um is taking more of a business approach um whereas the previous administration perhaps dare i say didn't but that brings us to the end uh, of this new segment we'll take a short break and after the break we'll start off our first segment which is be about the christmas dinner and what it, does it consist Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. Just before the break, we were discussing um, all the headlines of the newspapers this morning. But it's now that we do make our way into our first segment, which is about the Christmas dinner and what it consists of. And actually, that will be sparking some of our appetites this morning, especially if some of us who perhaps haven't had breakfast. But what is Christmas dinner? And what does it consist of? And also, uh, just to inform our listeners, we will have uh, expert callers. I say experts in what I mean is we have professional chefs coming soon, and which will help us um, give an in-depth detail as to the Christmas dinner and its tradition. But the gist of the story really is every year, um, all of us know that a Christmas dinner is carried out. And across the world, it's a very busy time. People across different kitchens are preparing meals for Christmas dinner um, and go through different dishes, recipes and cooking styles. However, what actually goes on behind is what um, are some of the traditional meals um, and as to how those traditional meals are prepared. And how can we spend wisely on the food? Um, one of the top chefs provides an insight. The tips for the perfect Christmas dinner in a luxury lifestyle magazine. Lee is a head chef at Stratford-upon-Avon's award-winning AA uh, Rosette Number no. 44 Brazier Restaurant, which is part of the Arden Hotel on Waterside. And he gave some tips as to how the perfect Christmas dinner is prepared. So he says that preparing some things in advance, such as... Um, roast potatoes and vegetables and having your turkey stuffed and ready to go keep the turkey out of the fridge before cooking so it reaches a room temperature be generous with the gravy as it brings it, it all together the tip for a crispy roast potato is the night before peel and cut to even sizes boil them until the outer layer starts to break down and put them in the colander and then return them to the pan to fluff them up 
keep them in the fridge overnight, cook them for around 40 to 60 odd minutes, and turning them every 15 minutes and not overcrowding them. And for the best turkey, to be put um, to put butter under the skin of the room temperature, um, and that is turkey, then you can cook it on a trivet, which is just some root vegetables, carrots, onions, celery, and that way the air circulates throughout the whole bird and also flavors your gravy in the end. Cook it at 190 uh, centigrade at 40 minutes per kilo and keep on basting it. Once you remove from the oven, test that the bird is at 75 degrees centigrade and leave it to rest for about an hour. And for the gravy, take the juices from the roast and the vegetable trivet and some stock and then corn flour to thicken it up. Wait for it to reduce in the pan. So it's very um, detailed point on how to prepare the perfect Christmas dinner for me masterclass um, in cooking. Brother Osman, what are some of the traditions of Christmas dinner and um, yeah, how important is it to adhere to those traditions? Well, according to the internet, some of the most famous traditions are turkey, of course, with stuffing, uh, mashed potatoes, uh, gravy, cranberry sauce and vegetables other types of poultry roast beef or ham are also used pumpkin or apple juice raisin pudding and christmas pudding or or the famous fruit cake are the staples for the dessert most popular dishes and aspects of christmas dinner uh, that could be life um so the BBC Good Food Guide for the Christmas dinner is that you leave giblets in the turkey cavity, um, undercook the turkey, uh, split the gravy, too many guests, um, and not enough turkey is not good. Um, yeah, what can go wrong? Um, that you forget to defrost the turkey. As mentioned by by the points of the chef, that uh, you should leave it on a in on on the room temperature for uh, at least a day. Um, the vegetables could be undercooked, so of course uh, a a bad um, prepared meal will ruin the Christmas dinner. Um, what else can go wrong? <laughs> yeah, no, these are. Incredibly um, nerve-wracking points, especially um, um, on one occasion. Actually, there was a a royal chef um, who forgot to defrost the turkey in the morning, and she filled the bath with hot water and tried to defrost it. But apparently, clearly, it didn't work. So these are some of the more worrying points, especially about defrosting. You, um, that's the whole problem with it that it can't be done quickly um, if you try to do it too quickly you might defrost the outside but inside will always remain cold mm. um, just like we fry things the the, the hot oil boils um, I mean fries everything outside but deep inside it doesn't give you the same result whereas if you cook it slowly um, on, on a light flame mm. that's when uh, you know 
probably heard that that's when where the flavor comes in that's where the mm. quality comes up yeah you certainly right um perhaps that is a key tip for our listeners too to remember if some of our listeners are, are new to cooking um and what can people take away from dinner? Well, it depends on the company, really. Um, family time, happy times, I guess. It's more of a coming together than actually eating. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, I think, perhaps a reason for people to come together, and especially for the last two odd years during COVID, where many of us haven't had the opportunity to come together, not just for Christmas dinners, but for dinners in general, for all the festivities, um, you know, your Eids, your various other um, religious festivities they've somewhat been in fact not somewhat they've been completely barred because of the times that we have um, gone through so i guess it's um it is indeed a time to um, you know come together after such a long period um and spend some time together on the point of spending because of the way that the cost of living crisis currently is you know what can people take away from the dinner and how can we spend money more wisely brothers one well uh, make the most of yellow bargain stickers look for discounts obviously um another big thing is that you plan ahead uh, mm. which i assume um everyone does especially for christmas it's such a big event for many people mm. so plan buying the meat in advance before the price hike in the Christmas period. Consider a cheap alternative to turkey meat. Um, also use fresh vegetables and not frozen ones and make things from base yourself instead of buying ready-made items. Uh, obviously the, the fresh vegetables will um, will be more uh, flavorful. Um, and indeed, um, to help us understand the whole concept of cooking and indeed, especially Christmas dinners, we are joined by our First guest this morning, very warm welcome, and thank you so much for joining us, Chef uh, Gary uh, McLennan. Hi there, good morning, how are you? Yeah, very good, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Gary was born in Glasgow, a multi-award winning chef, has been at the heart of the Scottish hospitality industry for 35 years, working up and down the country to open and develop over 80 venues. In 2017, Gary was awarded the title of Scotland's National Chef by the Scottish Government. In his voluntary role, Gary supports Scottish Government in food, health, education and the promotion of Scotland's amazing produce around the world. In December 2016, he was crowned the champion in BBC's MasterChef, the professionals, after taking on 47 other professional chefs in pursuit of gastronomic glory. And since then, Gary has travelled to the world to promote Scottish food, education and culture, including in the USA, Singapore, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Colombia, Cuba and Canada. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a pleasure to have you this morning, um, Gary. What are your top tips for Christmas dinner? I think the the first thing is is you need to plan, and and that's probably the boring bit. You know, everyone's really struggling just now with the price of food and and things like that. And obviously, everyone these days is really short on time. Um, particularly the way Christmas is kind of working this this year as well. I think, as I say, think about who you've got coming. Um, and and get a proper list done. And again, I've already started buying my, my food for Christmas. You know, get getting things in the freezer and things like that, getting organised. Um, you don't want to be running about to the last minute getting things done. And I think it's important on the day that that Christmas morning is spent on the carpet playing Lego with your kids. 
you know, get everything done the day before, including cooking that turkey. Mm-hmm. So you, you are you saying you can cook the turkey a day before? It doesn't have to be that... I, I think, yeah, I think it's a necessity. Um, the time it takes the turkey to cook, the space it takes in the oven... You know, I get the, you know, we all have this kind of vision, you know, it's almost mm-hmm. like a Hollywood vision of that turkey meal, you know, and, the, and and they bring out the turkey and they carve at the table and everyone's sitting around waiting on it. You know, it's just, for a chef, that, it's just ridiculous. You know, you have to get it, you have to get it done in advance. You want to get it cooked properly to the right temperature, mm. get it cooled, get it rested and cooled, and then you can get it off the bone and slice it. And what I tend to do is I slice it and I slice it into portions. So if there's 10 people coming, I'll get a, a couple of trays and I'll slice the turkey so that everyone's got a little bit of the white meat, brown meat, uh, some chipolatas and some stuffing. And then I cover that up on a tray and I pop it in the fridge and it doesn't take up any room in your fridge either. And then on Christmas Day, I just flood that tray with some of the, the, the gravy mm. and then just warm it through the oven. Wow. And that's how the turkey should be done. You you do lose the the Hollywood, the Hollywood uh, walkout, but it it does take a lot of the pressure off you. It really does in terms of space in your fridge, your oven, uh, and time. Perfect, and that's that's a little bit of an issue with experts. They want everything perfect, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so how how do you make sure the dinner incorporates everyone's dietary requirements? Again, it's known your audience. You know, it's understanding the mm. needs of the people that are coming. And I think this year might be the kind of first year when you're bringing in um, more people to your home, you know, and, and, and friends and family and a, a sort of wider a wider range of people. So just ask the question. Um, the other thing I do as well, which I think is really important, is I actually don't put food on plates. Mm. So if, if you get, and I, I tend to do a lot of people at Christmas, I've sometimes had 30 people in, in my home for Christmas, and what I tend to do is the only thing I put on the actual dinner plate is the the meat, as long as everyone's going to have it. And then everything else is on the table. And I think, you know, I think it's a, it's a nicer way to eat where people can actually pick and choose what they're going to take from the table. And what that also mm-hmm. does as well, especially if you've got kids, is that the the kids, kids are kids are clever they won't take something they're not going to eat and they'll only take a little bit of something they're not sure of but what i've noticed with with this type of service and it's actually called family service is that the kids will go back so they won't flood their plate they won't push the food around and stuff like that and they'll take a couple of Brussels sprouts and they'll eventually go back uh, to realize that they're actually nice <laughs> nice and uh also, is it true that people spend on average three hours in the kitchen for Christmas? Oh, I think it's more than that. I did see that stat, and I don't know where they've got it from. <laughs> I wish I could only spend three hours in the kitchen at Christmas. No, I think it's... I mean, I'm three hours doing the dishes. No, I think I think it's much longer. And again, I think Christmas has come down to almost the, the one time of the year where even families who don't have the big sort of family meals, they're doing it. You know, and and maybe only doing it once a year, so there's a lot of pressure. I mean, my biggest mm-hmm. memory as a young kid was growing up, and my mum just being so stressed out over Christmas dinner. I never seen her on Christmas Day, and it kind of resonated with me when I got my own family and and, and you're holding your own Christmas. I didn't want that, you know. So as I say, I, I do everything. I used to do everything on Christmas Eve right up until the 
I got uh, one of my sons was born on Christmas Eve, so I now do everything on the twenty third, so that I'm not stuck in the kitchen the whole day of his birthday. So it's all about that advanced preparation. And if you go to a restaurant, that food is is organised and prepared and ready to go mm. when you place your order. So it's just about being that that little bit organised and and you know get getting ahead of yourself and try and get some time with the kids at Christmas. Yes, obviously you being an expert, what do you think of someone else preparing the Christmas dinner? Or is it something you must do, like this is your thing? I would love it if someone invited me for Christmas dinner, but I come <laughs> along with uh, six other people. So I've got five kids, so we, it's much easier for people to come to us. But I, one day I hope that someone will cook my Christmas dinner. <laughs> yeah. Gary, are you still with us? Yes, I'm still here, yeah. Brilliant. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. And um, I guess the question on everybody's mind really is how can we make the cooking part um, an, an enjoyable experience? Um, I think it's spreading the workload out. So if you think that you're going to be overloading your ovens, think about a different type of dessert. You know, think of something that won't that won't be in the that won't be in the uh, oven. You know, even if even if you there's things you can do, you can you can buy smart as well. You know, if you want to do a nice sort of starter selection, there's lots of really nice things that you can actually buy. You know, things like smoked salmon and 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 prawns and seafood and things like that that can already be done and at, at actual actual point of perfection that you can just put out. I really like things like olives and cornichons and things like that around the table as well, which I think again it's these little sort of nibbles and. And buy good ones, you know. If you, you know, buy 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 decent ones that people are going to eat. Um, so it's 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 big wins you're looking for for little little effort. The main event is definitely the main course, whatever route you go down. A lot of people are doing different stuff, you know. And regardless what you're cooking, you know, there is a bit of work in it because people tend to tend to try and provide a wee bit of everything for everyone. No one can make their mind up what the perfect potato is for Christmas, so they end up doing three. You know, so you've got you know the the classic croquettes and the the roasters, which is the the, the big one. Um, but but my house, you know, dauphinoise is always a always one for Christmas as well. But it's just getting ahead, um, and just think about getting some help as well. So don't don't take it all on yourself. And even simple things like someone finding the cutlery and getting the table set, or or even just something simple like someone emptying the bin for you every now and again, or running. You know, getting some some washing up done, and I know just just through the years of experience, people just get in that zone, and and people tend to stay away. But to try and encourage people to come in and and give you a little bit of hand, even if you walk out for ten minutes so that they can clear some dishes and just spread that spread that um, that workload amongst the family. Yeah, I think that's crucial. It takes pressure off the um, the main chef, um, and I guess. This is perhaps also on um, people's minds as to, you know, what can go wrong at a Christmas dinner and how to quickly resolve those um, hiccups, should we say? Yeah, everything can go wrong for Christmas dinner, mm. um, especially people who aren't cooking very often. And I, I think the big thing to realise is it's a plate of food and that's it. You know, it's a plate of food. Don't get stressed about it. You know, give your kids a cuddle. It's Christmas, so don't worry about it. Really, it's not a. I don't think it's a major thing. There's always something there that you can use. 
Brilliant. Well, Gary, thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure understanding the ins and outs of how to prepare a perfect Christmas dinner, especially with your accolades and um, your expertise. So thank you once again so much. Brilliant. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Chef Gary McLean, who is a multi-award winning chef, um, who's been at the heart of Scottish hospitality for over 35 years. So an absolute pleasure. Um, we'll take a short break, and after the break, we'll continue with this segment and see... Islam's point of view on hospitality and indeed serving others. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum and welcome back to the Breakfast Show here at the Voice of Islam. And just before the break, we were speaking with um, Masterclass in Cooking, um, Chef Gary McLean. Um, but it's now time that we do make some strides towards an Islamic point of view and see what Islam has to say on hospitality and indeed on eating. So, Brother Sman, what's uh, what are some of the um, some of the points that Islam lays out just before the eight o'clock news. Uh, yeah, the the most important one I would say is that moderation in eating and everything else in life. The Holy Quran states that O children of Adam, look to your adornment at every time and place of worship, and eat and drink, but exceed not the bounds. Surely He does not love those who exceed the bounds. So where we are commanded that we can eat and drink whatever we like, um, obviously apart from the prohibitions, um, there's no there's no limit to you can eat one burger or you can eat two slices of pizza. But there is this commandment of moderation that you should not exceed your limits. You should not go over um, your limits because that will ultimately harm you. Uh, so eat but uh, be careful not to overeat a very fundamental point um, and we'll continue with the Islamic segment just after the 8 o'clock news You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum, welcome back to the breakfast show. We were talking uh, just before the break about the Islamic perspective on uh, hospitality and uh, invitations. Uh, we did mention that the Holy Quran 
talks about uh, eating and drinking in a controlled manner uh, and uh, from today's scientific research and uh, um, I say uh, I would say personal experience of everyone we know that overeating or eating uh, without uh, a controlled diet is always harmful and uh, many people who do follow some kind of diet whether it's very extreme or very lenient they seem to find uh, benefits and uh, those who stick with it their lives um, change um, another <clears throat> um, narration of the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him is uh, is as follows that he mentions that when someone uh, invites you to to food or dinner or, or lunch you should accept the invitation um, this is a very very important a lesson for us uh, many times we see that people people don't have time uh, or they think they have more important things to do but uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him has taught us here that an invitation from anyone especially from your neighbors is something uh, f f done from his side uh, out of courtesy and uh, from it's, it's a loving gesture and uh, it is our responsibility to accept the invitation as he has very kindly offered it so um if we do not accept it it would be very it's it's not it's not a nice thing is it it's a very it could be embarrassing for some people as well <clears throat> and uh, similarly uh, he has also mentioned that when two people come together to give you an invitation uh, you should accept the one which uh, whose door is nearer to you in neighborhood the reason for that is the rights of a neighbor which is uh, also heavily emphasized in Islam that um, your neighbor is uh, has so many rights and uh, it's very important to take care of your neighbor it's very important to make sure you don't trouble your neighbors um, that's why you should uh, if two people do give you an invitation um, the one who is closer to you uh, has a slightly um, greater right uh, for you to accept his invitation however if one of them comes before the other then you should accept the invitation of the one who comes first as he was his he invited you first so these are some very important lessons we find in the Holy Quran and in the narrations of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him regarding hospitality and invi um, accepting invitations um, we should definitely um, follow these teachings we should uh, try them we should uh, we will see that they will always be benefit to these things and yeah there'll be many there's many many other points um, but now we we do have another um, <clears throat> recording with uh, one of our guests who could not attend the show live but he we managed to get an interview with him and uh, we'll be listening to that now so dear listeners uh now I'm very delighted to have with me uh, James Cooper, who has run the website whychristmas.com since 2000, which has the most Christmas information on the web. So on the site, you can find out history of Christmas traditions, like why we send Christmas cards, have Christmas trees, and Santa's original name. Learn how Christmas is celebrated around the world, and there's there's the history of the Christmas story and lots of Christmas fun. 
So um, James is now with us. Uh, as I already mentioned, he's a Christmas expert, and he is ready to share the joy of Christmas. So James, um, good morning and welcome to the big. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure to have you with me. Um, James, um, as we are approaching Christmas, can you please tell us, but before we start about Christmas, I just want to know about your organization and about yourself. You can just give us a bit more story about yourself and about your organization. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I started um, finding out about Christmas back in 2000. Um, I was starting as a web designer back then, and some friends who were primary school teachers came to me and said, why can't we find a child-safe and friendly site with information about Christmas that isn't trying to sell them anything? Because there were the likes of Disney who had child websites back then, um, but they were really wanting to sell their DVDs and things. Um, so I was a big kid and I still am and I loved Christmas so I thought it would be fun to find out a bit more about Christmas so I made a single little site for um, a primary school in North London and little did I ever imagine that 20 years later um, it would still be running that it would be uh, the biggest Christmas information site in the world and I'd know everything there is to know about Christmas. Okay, interesting, interesting. And um you know, Christmas, because Christmas is a part of the society, of, especially of Western society, and uh, uh, what is Christmas originally about and has the meaning of Christmas changed in the past year since it became an event? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Christmas, the word Christmas comes from Christ's Mass, and it comes mm -hmm. from the church service that celebrated the birth of Jesus. Um, so Christmas was all about the celebration of the birth of Jesus. It sort of, uh, over the years, it started about the year 300, is the around the 300s is the first recorded dates of it. And the dating of it is all a bit of a muddle. No one's really quite sure why it's on the 25th of December. It probably came about as a mixture of coming with pre-Christian midwinter festivals in Europe um, and also the dating of the death the death of Jesus, actually, rather yeah. than the birth of Jesus, because okay. um, early Christians calculated his death to be the 25th of March. And then they thought that he would have been born and died on the same day. And then they changed the birth of it to the conception of Jesus. And if you have the conception of Jesus celebrated on the 25th of March, then you celebrate the birth of Jesus nine months later on the 25th of December. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of the background of Christmas. And, yeah, it's it's changed very much over the years. For hundreds of years, up until sort of the Victorian period, it was very much a secular holiday. Um, people had big parties if you were rich and famous. Um, but if you were a normal person, um, it was more of a religious holiday, certainly for the first 1,000 years or so of Christmas. Interesting, interesting. So basically, the early Christian never—basically, they just remember the death of Jesus instead of the uh, date of where he was born. Yeah, it started um, remembering the death and then having the birth of him because it was mm -hmm. recorded in the Bible as well. And um, they started to celebrate that as well, and oh. they thought that was a good thing to celebrate. <laughs> no, no, true. Um, can you tell us about some main traditions of Christmas? 
Yeah, I mean, Christmas that we sort of think of it, how the traditional Western Christmas um, that we have today, you know, sending Christmas cards and having Christmas trees and roast turkey and things like that. That all really comes from the Victorian periods around the mm-hmm. 1840s and the 1850s. Um, Christmas before that was had lots of different ways of celebrating Christmas, but the Victorians um, really celebrated it in a way that we have today. So um, the first Christmas card was invented in 1843. Um, Christmas tree were popular in Europe for a couple of hundred years before that but they came big in um, the UK around the 1840s. Um, Christmas carols that you might sing if you go to a carol service in a church or you might hear them on the radio and things like that um, they became popular again during the Victorian um, period. So yeah a lot of the things that we associate with um, with Christmas now come from the Victorian period, but things like Christmas pudding and Christmas cake, they've had very interesting and different experiences and mince pies as well. Christmas puddings and mince pies, they date back to the medieval period. So sort of like the 11 and 1200s. Um, and they were originally made with meat in. Oh, okay. And, and then um, the traditions are like, uh, are, the, are the traditions the same? Like uh, have the Eastern Christian do they have the same tradition like the Western Christian in regards to Christmas? Um, yeah, I mean, going to a church and celebrating the birth mm. of Jesus. Um, yeah, that's been the same um, throughout the throughout the time, really, to do that. I mean, less people do it now than they certainly used to. And it's now more of a secular holiday where we associate Santa and giving presents and things. Um, but the, the first Santa, St. Nicholas, he was a Christian bishop um, from w- in what's now parts of Turkey. Um, and he was known and became a saint because he was a generous um, gift giver because he was a Christian. Um, and so the, 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 the Santa wears red and white robes because the early bishops wore red and white robes. And the tales of um, St. Nicholas got taken round Europe and his name got changed to Sinterklaas from St. Nicholas. And when he went over to America with the settlers, his name got changed from Sinterklaas to Santa Claus. So, um, yeah, so that's the sort of a secular part of Christmas. So Christmas is a funny mixture of sort of some Christ- um, religious bits and lots of secular bits. I see. I see. Um, then, uh, what is the main thing that people take away after Christmas holiday? That's a that's a very interesting question. And I think everybody takes away different things. For some people, it's all about the presents and having fun and eating and drinking too much. And you might feel a bit ill after Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some people, it's about the memories of um, being with their friends and family and having a special day. Um, spending it with the people that you love and other people is it is more about the religious side so it's really up to everybody that you can make Christmas what you like oh interesting so what is like have you done approaching uh, Christmas already uh, there any preparation you have already done for Christmas um or- yeah I've got what my decorations are up I put my Christmas okay. tree up and hang some lights up um, I've got my Christmas cards sent yeah um, so it's bits and bobs like that I'm getting ready, yes. So what is like, what do you do normally during Christmas? I, I have sort of what you'd call a traditional sort of British Christmas. I'll go and visit my family and we'll have Christmas dinner together and I'll spend the day with them. Um, just spending time, um, having some fun with my friends and family. And um, 
yeah, sort of, you know, eating eating Christmas cake and Christmas pudding and oh. possibly a mince pie and things like that. Well, that's tasty. Um, well, like, <laughs> uh, coming like, to the dinner, um, can you tell us more about Christmas etiquette at dinner? Yeah, again, I, the thing about Christmas is that everybody can make it their own. I mean, traditionally now um, in Britain, we would have turkey as the main um, dish at Christmas. And um, that sort of dates back a hundred or so years. But before that, beef was often um, the main meal eaten at Christmas. Um, but you can make Christmas what you like. You can you can have your main Christmas meal, whatever you like. Um, you can do what you like at Christmas. I think that's one of the, the wonderful things that we have these sort of traditions, but you can make it however you are. If, if you don't like some of the traditions, do your own thing. Um, I, I think, it, you know, you can you can do what you like to celebrate Christmas. Just spend some time with the people that you like and you love and enjoy yourself. Oh, that's true. Just one uh, last question, um, because in Christianity we have a lot of events, so what makes Christmas dinner stand out from other events? I think it's become sort of commercially um, the biggest event. It was a time, especially after World War Two, when we had radio and TV and much more commercial things like that, when shops saw that they could sell lots of things at Christmas as well, rather than it being just a religious thing. It became a big commercial and secular holiday. And I think that's slightly sad, really, that it's become all about money and having things rather than spending time with people that you love and just remembering that it's nice to spend time with people that you love. Because I think that's that's one of the most important things for Christmas to me. No, it is. Um, James, I'll, I wish you all the best. I wish um, you a good Christmas. Enjoy the time with your family. And have, and I hope you will have your favorite food again. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you for joining. And, well, thank uh, you for having me, and happy Christmas to you and all your listeners. Thank you, thank you, you too. Thank you. Bye. So that was an interview with one James Cooper, who is a representative from uh, Why We Celebrate Christmas, and indeed uh, gave us an in-depth understanding of the, the history and indeed um, the traditions that are associated with Christmas. Um, so he was from whychristmas.com. So we'll take a short break, and after the break, we'll start off our second segment, which will be about the prestigious award for work into causes of long COVID. Allah Akbar Allah. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio 
Assalamu alaikum and the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you and welcome back to the breakfast show here at The Voice of Islam. So, before the break, we were listening to an interview by one James Cooper telling us about the ins and outs of um, Christmas and indeed um, the traditions that are associated with it. But it's time that we make our strides towards the second segment of this morning and that's about the prestigious award for work in causes of long COVID. Dr. Mita Long was named one of the best young scientists in her field uh, for her work in understanding why some people continue to suffer after being infected with COVID-19. She was awarded the British Association of Lung Research uh, Early Career Investigator Award at the British Doric Society Winter Meeting after delivering a presentation on her research into neutrophilis, uh, which are white blood cells that act as the immune system's first line of defense and the role they play in the COVID-19 infection. So what was found in her research? A very poignant question. Well, the aim of her research was to understand why people continue to suffer after being infected with COVID-19. And the study showed changes with uh, neutrophilis were linked to delayed recovery and highlighted uh, neutrophilus has potential therapeutic targets in long COVID. She said neutrophilus are typically associated with bacterial infections. They target and destroy bacteria, protecting your body from further harm and infection. However, we knew that neutrophilus were quite diverse and we did everything that we possibly could to characterize what they might be in COVID-19 to explore if they were helping or harming. And quite early on, we found that they were doing something changing in COVID-19 and tended to be associated with more severe disease. We found that these cells have an ongoing role in non-recovered patients. And she added, COVID-19 really changed things for scientific research. Viral infections hadn't received that scale of research attention before, and there hasn't really been a significant advance in how we treat people that come into hospital with severe respiratory infections for a long time. Um, Brother Sman, what is the award and um, sort of some background as to the award? Yeah, so the award she was uh, <clears throat> given was the British Association of Lung Research Early Career Investigator Award at the British Thoracic Society Winter Meeting after delivering a presentation on her research into neutrophils which are white blood cells, as you said, that act as the immune system's first line of defense and the role they play in COVID-19 infection. The BALR, Early Career Investigator Award, is highly competitive and is awarded in recognition of the very best basic translation or clinical research performed in the UK respiratory community by an early career research. The prizes are awarded based on the quality and content of the research performed, the quality of the abstract submitted and uh, in shortlisted candidates, the quality of the oral presentation given at the Early Career Investigators Symposium at the BTS Winter Meeting. So what else has been found out as part of COVID research? So on the 30th of April, one vaccine dose can nearly um, half transmission risk. Um, 
A single dose of the COVID-19 vaccine made by either Pfizer or AstraZeneca cuts a person's risk of transmitting the SARS-CoV-2 to their closest contacts by as much as half, according to an analysis of more than 365,000 households in the United Kingdom. <clears throat> uh, 29th of April, in Santiago, COVID-19 dealt the hardest blow to people with low socio-economic status because of factors such as crowded households, a lack of health care and an inability to work from home. The death rates were greater in low-income areas of Santiago, especially among people under age 80, uh, than in high-income areas. According to research by Gonzalo Mena at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It's very interesting, um, and it's you know, thoroughly deserved because of the you know, the notable effects that we've heard in the news that co- the long COVID um, has on various people. And it's, it's a shame that so many people are still suffering um, from the uh, long COVID. Um, there was just news yesterday that in China the COVID is getting out of hand again and the, the hospital staff is feeling that pressure again, which we felt, um, you know, like last year. Um, and so um, it's, yeah. it's not gone. Yeah, exactly. And that's very worrying. Um, and, you know, here at home, um, the, our listeners will be aware that the LHS staff members um, have gone on strike or indeed are <laughs> going to go on strike um, mm. because of the pay issue, which, you know, is a debate for another time but you know the more pressing matter is that this period being a or rather the winter period being a crucial period um and god forbid any um sort of increases in infection or indeed um an upheaval um in various other infections could be dramatic to the response that is provided um by our health services on the 28th of april self-taken swabs can track a pandemic's hidden patterns. A regular swabbing of a random sample of the population quickly detects the resurgence of SARS-CoV-2 infections, even in young adults. Stephen Riley and Paul Elliott at Imperial College London tested nose and throat samples from 594,000 randomly selected UK residents who swabbed themselves or their children between the 1st of May and the 8th of May and the 8th of September 2020. The study found that during that time, the SARS-CoV-2 infection rate dipped as low as 0.04% in the tested population, down from around 5% in early 2020, at the height of the United Kingdom's first wave, and then began climbing to a peak of about 0.13% in the final round of testing. On the 22nd of April, previous infections could shorten COVID illnesses. Recent infections by viruses related to SARS-CoV-2 could reduce the duration of COVID-19, according to an analysis of antibodies from 2,000 healthcare workers. And on the 15th of April, common asthma medicine could shave days off COVID illnesses. A clinical trial in more than 4,600 people at risk of serious COVID-19 found that an inhalable uh, asthma medication shortened the duration of disease symptoms by about three days. The asthma drug 
butizant is an inexpensive and widely available inhalable steroid. Christopher Butler and Richard Hobbs at the University of Oxford, UK, and their colleagues tested uh, benzodiazepine in people who had COVID-19 symptoms but were not hospitalized. Participants were randomly assigned to either receive the drug or serve in a controlled group, but none took a placebo. Both participants and investigators knew who had received the drug. Those who took um, Bundesign twice daily for two weeks reported that their COVID-19 symptoms, uh, symptoms ended three days earlier than those who did not use the steroid. The results have not yet been um, peer-reviewed. So, very interesting to see, well, the, firstly, the amount of numbers that are involved. Um, you know, for your... Um, regular swabbing um you know nearly 600,000 randomly selected people um had uh, their children or themselves you know swabbed for around about a couple of months and that's that there suggested and that the rate the rate of infection dipped um at 0.04% and um that was a dip from 5% in the early part of 2020 but as the later part of 2020 um, dramatically it, um, dipped, and the, um, the 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 analysis of the antibodies of the 2,000 healthcare workers um, also showed us that um, the uh, infections related to the SARS-CoV-2 reduced, um, and finally the medicine relating um, to the asthma, uh, which helped uh, also uh, in actuality reduce the spread of the virus, uh, whereby 4,600 people um, who were at risk of serious COVID-19 um, took this medicine and indeed showed uh, very uh, dramatic results. So, Brother Sman, what are the neutrophils? Yeah, so uh, all these things mentioned... Um it was things find out found out in the research, but obviously the main thing, uh, main research of um, which was conducted was uh, um, that showed changes within the neutrophils uh, that were linked to delayed recovery and highlighted neutrophils as potential therapeutic targets in long COVID. Neutrophils are a type of white blood cell that help your immune system fight infections and heal injuries. So as soon as an infection enters your body, uh, the neutrophils are like the first first um, defense, first line of defense. When microorganisms such as bacteria or viruses enter the body, neutrophils are one of the first immune cells to respond. They travel to the site of infection where they destroy the micro microorganisms by ingesting them and releasing enzymes that kill them. And neutrophils also boost this, uh, the response of other immune cells. So what they do um, essentially is they clinch themselves to the bacteria and uh, release some enzymes into it, which slowly kill it from inside. When uh, lower levels of these cells are present, your immune system weakens and your body is less able to defend itself against bacteria. The response... <clears throat> Uh, against bacteria, viruses, and infections, including uh, 
simple fever or even a severe uh, pneumonia. Neutrophilia, also known as a neutrophilic leukocytosis, occurs when the, the level of neutrophils are too high, which is often the result of a bacterial infection. So neutrophils are good for your body, but if uh, you have too many neutrophils in your body, that that's not a good sign. Rather, it is uh, more alarming because what's what you you think of what is the reason that so many neutrophils are present in the body, and the reason is that there's a bacterial infection most likely, and to combat the infection, immature neutrophils leave your bone marrow to soon um, enter into your bloodstream. <clears throat> Yeah, so this is uh, what uh, neutrophils are. This is uh, what uh, the research was conducted on. And uh, <clears throat> these were the findings that have um, led to this uh, award. Fantastic. Um, yeah, the no, British Association. A, yeah, no, it's a very interesting um, a, a piece of research. And indeed, um, you know, it'll certainly help uh, a vast number of people. Um and it's brilliant that you know we are covering this and bringing about the mm -hmm. awareness for um, our listeners who perhaps um, may or may not be up to date um, with regards to this advancement in science. We'll take a short break, and after the break, we'll actually talk about uh, Islam and science and see whether the two go hand in hand. And um, His Holiness, who is the current worldwide leader of the Amdi Muslim community, his encouragement to young Amdi Muslims to go into research and to learn about science. So don't go anywhere and stay tuned. Muhammad, one of the most revered personalities of this age. To many, he was the most influential man ever to have graced this earth. The final prophet of God. The perfect man who brought the most perfect religion. However, today we live in a world which has been divided by various interpretations of his life. A world which is perplexed by the behaviour of those who attribute his name to their actions. Who was Muhammad? What did his life stand for? To find out, read the life of Muhammad by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, the second successor of the promised Messiah. Simplified answers to frequently asked questions. What is the difference between Ahmadi Muslims and non-Ahmadi Muslims? This needs a very lengthy answer. But briefly, the main difference is in the belief concerning the advent of the Imam Mahdi, the Prince Messiah, and the reformer of the latter days. Non-Ahmadi Muslims expect that he will be sent by God in fulfilment of the prophecies of the Holy Prophet and are waiting for his advent. On the other hand, Ahmadi Muslims believe that his advent has already taken place and that the prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian, who also claimed that his advent fulfilled the prophecies that were mentioned in the scriptures of different religions about the coming of a reformer in the latter days. The followers of these religions, including non-Ahmadi Muslims, are still waiting for his advent. As for Ahmadi Muslims, as a result of believing that his advent has already taken place, they enjoy many blessings that other Muslims are deprived of. For example, Ahmadi Muslims enjoy the institution of Khilafat, which means that they are all united under one leadership and are escorted by a guided spiritual leader, while other Muslims remain divided and they disagree amongst themselves concerning many issues. Also, Ahmadi Muslims follow the true teaching of Islam 
as a result of following the teachings of the reformer of the age. The very important difference between the two is that Ahmadi Muslims believe in a living God whose attributes remain the same at all times, while other Muslims believe that some of his attributes have become idle. For example, his speech with his sincere servants. They think that he used to speak in the past, but for some reason, at the present time, he has stopped communicating with his servants through revelations. Writings of the Promised Messiah it should be remembered that God Almighty, by demanding faith in the unseen, does not wish to deprive the believers of certainty of understanding the divine. Indeed, faith is a ladder for arriving at the certainty of understanding, without which it is vain to seek true understanding. Those who climb this ladder surely experience for themselves the pure and undefiled spiritual verities when a sincere believer accepts divine commands and directions for the only reason that God Almighty has bestowed upon him through a righteous bearer, he becomes deserving of the bounty of understanding. That is why God Almighty has established a law for his servants that they should first acknowledge him by believing in the unseen so that all the problems they face may be resolved through the bounty of true understanding. But it is a pity that a hasty one does not adopt these ways. Assalamu alaikum, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all, and welcome back to the breakfast show here at the Voice of Islam. So, before the break, we were talking about this groundbreaking advancement in the world of science, um, whereby um, a doctor in Merit Long. Um, has been named as one of the best young scientists in her field for her work in understanding why some people continue to suffer after being infected with COVID-19. And that's sort of been the uh, the gist of this, the of this segment, really, um, this prestigious award for work into the causes of long COVID and uh, how to sort of combat it. Um, um, and she was awarded the, the British Association of Lung Research um, Early Career Investigator Award at the British uh, Thoric Society winter meeting after delivering a presentation on her research into neutrophilis, which are white blood cells that are uh, that act as the immune system's first line of defence um, and the role they play in the COVID-19 infection. And I'm sure our listeners will be aware of so many people um, sadly um, being affected by long COVID um, and the dramatic the, the dramatic effects it's having on their lives and indeed on um, the impact it's having on you know, their loved ones. Um, so it's really um, a sign of relief and indeed good news that we have this um, advancement. Um, and it is a research, is a research but uh, I don't think they have found a combat to it they have found the cause mm. uh, which is I think the, the hardest step uh, finding the cure should be something uh, maybe a less of a challenge mm. or probably more of a challenge depending on uh, well the, the scientists would know better but yes this long COVID is very dangerous and uh, it has affected everyone um, I personally feel still the effects of COVID mm. um, I feel like I've getting weaker you know when, you, when you're running or playing yeah. sports you feel like yeah, I don't know if I'm perhaps. getting older, but I'm, I'm no. not that old yet. Yeah, no, <laughs> so no, it's you're certainly COVID. not. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, it's uh, impacted a great number of people, um, 
And, um, you know, it's, it is encouraging to see that there is some advancement in, in tackling, or at least plans are being prepared to tackle long COVID. Um, brothers, a small recap on the award um, and its background um, so that our listeners are aware of uh, the significance of the award. Yeah, so uh, as mentioned before, the award was at the the British Association of Lung Research Early Career Investigator Award <laughs> at the British Thoracic Society Winter Meeting. Um, that that was uh, uh, awarded to uh, um, uh, Merit Long for her research um, and uh, the role the role of uh, neutrophils in COVID nineteen infections causing this long COVID. The prizes are awarded based on the quality and the content of the research performed. Um, so out of all these uh, um, criterias, mm. um, she had the most outstanding research, uh, including the oral presentation. Um, yeah, so that was what the award was roughly about. Uh, also, they what they found, other than this uh um, finding of the neutrophils, they found that other things about the vaccination, um, such as that its um, transmission risk is halved by uh, taking a vaccine, um, either by Pfizer or AstraZeneca. Um, that is also um, um, very good news. And the, the analysis was done of um, using more than 365 households. So it was it was a very very big research and uh, showed some great results. Hundred percent, and um, you know, very sure that we have a timeline in front of us showing us you know the various um, points um, that have surfaced because of the the COVID research. A Chilean city's COVID toll reflects its vast inequalities. In Santiago, COVID nineteen dealt the hardest blow to people with low socioeconomic status. Uh, because of the factors such as crowded households or lack of health um, and and inability to work from home. So uh, bearing these points in mind, the death rates were greater um, in low-income areas of Santiago, especially among people under the age of 80, than in higher-income areas. Um, this is the research according to uh, Gonzalo Mena, which was covered previously at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Um, it is all telling us that COVID is mm. still around. It's just people, they don't want to, um, they would rather not, you know, face it anymore. Everyone is tired after, you know, like so many years. Yeah, um, literally years. This has been going on and I am still like surprised and it blows my mind mm. that people have been in uh, um, quarantine and curfew for you know, very, very long time that that period when no one was leaving, especially at the beginning. <clears throat> yeah, and you you would just think like, how can how can society and country work if everyone sits at home? But you see that this is what humans are capable of. The country is running again. Obviously, there was a, there's a big big backlash and uh, backlog. There's a lot of harm done. There's a lot of uh, economic and financial damage. But uh, everyone is still moving forward and trying their best to come out of this and con- come on top of uh, COVID. 100%. And that's the beauty of the human race. Um, and indeed, especially for those people that you know follow religion or at least a, um, a belief, um, 
you know, for example, this being the voice of Islam, the religion of Islam gives you the belief that there is a cure for every disease. Um, and indeed, um, you know, we have a, as Muslims, we have a greater purpose in life, um, you know, both a right to God and indeed to our fellow human being. Um, so COVID-19 allowed various Muslims around the world to serve others. Um, you know, and um, that's been very well documented. And not just Muslims, you know, people from all walks of life. Um, we saw the altruist uh, attribute come out of people, um, you know, volunteering up and down the country. The Sikhs, for example, you know, providing um, meals to various um, lorry drivers at one point it was, I think, during the Dover um, inundated um, drivers. Um, and the various, you know, um, religious groups doing their bit. Um, that's how important we believe that, you know, religion has a role to play in bringing people together. And on this point, actually, Brother Osman, how does Islam, more specifically, and science um, work? Or do they actually go hand in hand? Um, and is there a link? Because a lot of people have this understanding that science and religion or in Islam, you know, um, are two separate avenues completely. One is, mm-hmm. you know, in the know-how, up-to-date, 21st century, and one is, you know, quote-unquote, apparently um, dated, um, specifically 1,500 years old. So how do we negate and respond to this allegation? Yeah, so first of all, I think... Um, whatever religion or sect or culture you belong to uh, humanity is something which brings us all together and uh, as you mentioned the 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 that's a great deed done by the sikhs providing food for the lorry drivers uh, if you look at our nurses uh, who are um, striking uh, obviously for their pay but what they are doing is uh, something amazing they have they have been doing throughout the covid pandemic um it was very very tough for them very many people did suffer some people uh you know lost their lives saving others so it was something really just amazing to see humans come together at uh, this crucial point uh and obviously um islam comes in wherever something good is being done because islam is essentially uh, it's it's meaning the meaning of islam is peace and submission so the first part peace um peace not just you know uh, world peace or uh, in terms of war but peace with your with your neighbor with your friends peace within you so islam always brings the good out it, it, it's, it's always giving you the the su- such a guidance which will benefit you and never harm you so the holy quran mentions in the in the chapter Ali Imran the third chapter in the verses 191 and 92 that in the creation of the heavens and of the earth and in the alternation of the night and the day there are indeed signs for men of understanding those who remember Allah while standing sitting and lying on their sides and ponder over the creation of the heavens and the earth our Lord thou hast not for Thou hast not created this in vain. Nay, holy art thou. Save us then from the punishment of the fire. Again, Allah the Almighty is diverting our attention to the fact that whatever he has created is not in vain. 
Nothing created in, in this world is unnecessary. Even the smallest of ants or animals, even every single atom. Sometimes uh, those who, who ponder over this, the scientists who look at these uh, atoms, fusion, they see that everything has to be perfect for this universe to work. If you look at the galaxy, if, if the moon or the earth was slightly closer or further away from the sun, uh, the, the whole, our whole galaxy could collapse. So these, this is the perfection which has been uh, placed by Allah the Almighty and it is definitely for everyone's benefit. Apart from that, the, um, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya community, may Allah be his helper, has also uh, brought our attention again and again towards um, serving humanity and towards you know thriving further in science and uh, advancing, not just you know having a always having a backward thought. There is, um, and there probably always will be some extremists who take everything too literal, too serious, and don't understand the main reason behind the teachings of Islam. So uh, during Islam's golden age, Mus Muslim researchers reached the highest uh, echelons in the field of science, mathematics, geography, astronomy, medicine, and uh, other inventions. Whilst Europe la uh, languished in the dark ages, the Muslims were at the forefront of the world in discovery and innovation. Many of the innovations and scientific methods used by the world today are credited to the academic enlightenment of Islam's golden age. Can this golden age of Islam be revived? On a Saturday, 14th December 2019, the first Ahmadiyya Muslim Research Association Conference, His Holiness mentioned that thus, where our scientists and researchers strive to excel in their academic pursuits, they must always safeguard their faith fulfill the rights of Allah the Almighty and fulfill the demands laid upon them to search for additional evidence, proving the existence of an all-powerful God. Hence, there should always be a clear distinction between Ahmadi scientists and researchers and others who pursue similar fields of study. And the difference ought to be that the pursuit of knowledge of an Ahmadi must be based upon taqwa, which is righteousness. Indeed, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, said that a person should fear the human and perceptive nature of a believer because their knowledge is based upon righteousness. <clears throat> knowledge is one thing, but the application of the knowledge, the intention behind the knowledge, that is something which, which defines us, which uh, separates us from, uh, you know, uh, a textbook has a lot of knowledge, but the knowledge which, uh, which a human contains the way the human can use that knowledge to benefit humanity is something which not, no one else can follow. Um, every year at the Ahmadiyya annual convention, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, distributes gold medals and copies of the Holy Quran for the students who have achieved outstanding academic achievements. Uh, this is uh, and also a great way to you know encourage people to keep keep uh, thriving keep moving forward and uh, uh, always try to achieve the best they can this brings us to the end of our show today um i would like to thank everyone thank all our listeners for joining 
uh, tuning in today for um, our guests and uh, also our researchers and producers and the tech department, everyone who is making this show possible. Um, thank you for uh, joining us. I hope uh, you also join us tomorrow and uh, throughout the week. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, we will see you tomorrow morning.